This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. Location, Location, Location by Simon A. Smith and Jackie and the Dead Cat by Rupan Malakin. Location, Location, Location Written and read by Simon A. Smith Listening time, 6 minutes, 58 seconds When my parents got a divorce, they didn't say much. Mom said I was coming with her, but not the dog. She said, Alvin, you're coming with me. Ruffy stays here, and your dad stays here, too. Like she was picking sides for kickball or separating laundry. I didn't ask any questions about what went wrong. I had no question asking practice, no precedent. It's astounding to think how rare questions were in our house. If questions were an endangered animal and our house was East Africa, they'd be black rhinos. Things happened without reason, and no good could come from inquiring further. Commentary discourse was fruitless, if not altogether frightening, and was better avoided. For example, I didn't know who Tom Brokaw was until I was 20. The whole family agreed to keep mum about traumatic moments from our lives, and even that pact was communicated through silence. For example, once I decided to ask about why my stomach got upset every time I thought about dad drinking and driving, I stood on the sofa and cleared my throat, and when mom and dad both looked over, I said, I'm only kidding. I like sitting on the couch cushions better anyway. And then I got down. Life with mom was routine, regimented, utilitarian. She wasn't a bad mom, just ill-equipped, overwhelmed. She did the best she could. Isn't that what they say? If someone had asked her to write down her philosophy on motherhood, she'd have listed survival and then left the rest of the page blank. Going to the swimming pool was not for the purpose of getting wet and frolicking as much as it was for eluding other potentially inviting activities like sitting idle too long around the edge of the pool or taking lengthy drives in the car alone. Despite the fact that Mom was not keen on chit-chat or disruption, she wasn't after pure quiet either. When she wasn't watching television, it stayed on in the background. She moved from room to room, flipping on bathroom fans, opening refrigerator doors, shuffling her slippers on the carpet, or whistling to herself in the hallway. The thing about the television always being on made me very sad, and I thought it had something to do with loneliness. If I frowned or looked distraught, Mom would always pat me on the head and say, Do you want to know what happened on Melrose Place last week? I'll tell you if you want. Or you can go outside. Do you need some fresh air? Most of the time I would go outside. What I'd do is I would talk to myself, but I'd pretend that I was talking to other people about my thoughts and feelings and stuff. Sometimes I'd talk to objects in a whisper, the tire swing, the welcome mat, a stem of grass that I rolled around in my fingers. My father got to have me every other weekend, though I'm unsure he would have used those words. For a 14-year-old like me, a shy, tight-lipped boy with a wrong kind of early mustache, Weekends with Dad were opportunities to distance myself from Mom's apron strings, to absorb the poses and colloquialisms that made up my future self. I felt anxious around him, like whatever I was doing wasn't correct or standard for my age, my build, something. 
I did a lot of watching and imitating, preparing as an understudy for some role I could not yet imagine. If Dad burped, then I burped right after him. If he moaned a little when he stepped out of the car, I did it too. It never occurred to me that he might know I was copying him. Once, on a walk back to his apartment, we took a shortcut through an alley lined with endless garages. It was a filthy stretch, paved with cracked, crumbling gravel, dabbled with dank, oily puddles, and slimy with old leaves and debris from clogged gutters. Most of the garages looked ready to collapse, roofs buckling under years of heavy snowfall and neglect. Somewhere up ahead, the whiny sound of journeys faithfully seeped from a cheap, fuzzy radio. We're walking, and all of a sudden, Dad slowed down, dragged his sneakers. It took a bad spill there when I was about your age, he said, pointing to a cluster of garbage cans between two garages. It was more like he nodded in the direction than anything else. I couldn't believe it. Where? I shouted. I could have been shot the way I froze. The sun was slicing over rooftops, coning out over the cans like a spotlight. It was either that one or that one, he said deciding between the one red and one green garage door flanking the cans. Or maybe that one. Which one? What happened? Were you hurt? Slipped on the ice. I still have a scar, Dad said. He kneeled, raised the jean material in his right leg. There on his calf was a squiggle of pink skin in the shape of a bullwhip. I came toward the leg, my eyes closing in faster than my feet, nose-diving. I could see his thick black leg hair curling, shrinking in around the wound as he peeled it back. I ducked in closer. There could be no close enough. But Dad pushed the material down, molding it over his shoe. But where was it? What was it like? Was it right there, by that trash can? Was it that one right there, I demanded. Maybe. I'm not sure, he said. Standing, walking on ahead. I kept looking from him to the trash cans and back again. I wasn't ready to leave. I wanted to put my finger on the scar. I wanted to lay down right where he had fallen, fish around a little. Remember this, I told myself. Smell the area where he pointed, take in the scent of warm trash and fractured tar. Record this. Picture the man in the garage a few doors down, see him drop a metal wrench on the cement floor, listen to the echoing ping that follows. Hear his pitifully earnest voice singing along to Journey. He has long blonde hair, doesn't he? Yes. He's got white, floppy Reeboks and a sleeveless t-shirt. Use all your senses. Remember what it's like to breathe like this, jagged and sharp, the way you feel it right below the spot where you place your hand for the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. Dad, I called to him. Dad, which one? It doesn't matter, he said. He punched his hands in his pockets, kept walking. It's over, he hollered. There was something about the way he was walking, bow-legged, staggering from one foot to the other, shifting off balance as he kicked a rock. I could just tell. He had no idea. I heard him make a snorting sound, saw him whip some hair out of his eyes without using his hands. He spat. It wasn't a big loogie, but it came out swift and direct, pithy enough to let you know he was there. Come on, let's go, he said. Forget about it. He made it look so easy. Damn, I thought. Damn, he's good. Simon A. Smith writes and teaches English in Chicago, where he lives with his wife and a murderous orange tabby named Cheever. His fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in Hobart, 
Quick Fiction, Monkey Bicycle, Whiskey Island, Pank, Bound Off, Prick of the Spindle, and a few others. He likes it here. Jackie and the Dead Cat, written by Rupan Malakin, read by Kelly Shriver. Listing time, 7 minutes, 31 seconds. Jackie and the Dead Cat Jackie had met Michael's mother once, for Sunday lunch on a weekend visit to London, and it had been two of the longest, most awkward hours of her life. An evil, ferrety thing, she doted on her son with the feverish intensity of an evangelist charged with raising the Son of God. The cat was no better, a fat white lump, it had bristled and hissed when Jackie tried to pet it, and then stared at her throughout lunch, its head cocked, and if possible for a cat, its eyes narrowed. Still, it was just a dumb cat, and so Jackie thought no more about it, until a year or so later, when Michael arrived on her doorstep after work, his eyes red and puffy, and announced between sniffs and sobs that Lucretia was dead. "'Who's Lucretia?' Jackie asked. Michael reared back as though she had asked something as ridiculous as the sum of two plus two. "'You know Lucretia. You met her. She is—she was my mother's cat.' Oh, said Jackie, right, the cat. Sorry, I'm not really a cat person. The funeral is in the morning, said Michael. We have to drive tonight. A funeral for a cat? What's next, a bar mitzvah for a dog? This isn't funny. I loved that cat. Jackie placed what she hoped was a consoling hand on his arm. I'm sorry for your loss, but it was just a cat. She was not just a cat. Anyway, can you hurry up, please? We need to leave soon. But what about work tomorrow? I can't just... Jackie stopped when she saw Michael's dismay. Despite being nearly 40, she had never been in love before. Not that she really knew if she were in love now, love being such a hard feeling to identify, unlike heartburn or a headache. And she remained unsure about the correct form of things. However, Michael seemed upset, and if Michael was upset, then without doubt her duty comprised of mitigating that feeling. "'Will it cheer you up if I said I'll come with?' she asked. Michael nodded. What choice did she have? On the drive to London, Michael stared grim and silent at the M1 while Jackie sent emails to clients advising them she would be unavailable tomorrow. She thought it best to clear the whole day. Who knew what a cat funeral entailed? Maybe she'd have to make small talk with Uncle Felix about the degenerating morals of kittens in the modern world. As the speedometer crept over a hundred, Jackie said, Do we have to go so fast? I mean, it's not going anywhere. What's not going anywhere? replied Michael. It, you know, the cat, said Jackie. Remember, your dead cat? It, it was a she, and she had a name, and that name was Lucretia, okay? Please, can you remember that? Although Jackie knew Michael was overreacting, she put his despair down to the attributes of his personality that had swayed her into thinking she was in love. A modern man, he cried at sad songs, sighed at elderly couples, and usually backed down when told he was wrong. Lucretia, said Jackie, I'll remember now. I'm, I'm sorry. And with that, she put a hand on his knee, keeping it there as Michael's face twisted, then crumpled, keeping it there as yet more tears rolled down his cheeks, keeping it there, even though every tendon ached to curl that hand into a fist and punch her own face. Michael's mother lived in a Victorian townhouse in Crouch End, 
She opened the front door wearing a heavy black dress that hung lopsided off her thin frame and with a dark veil hazing her face. She greeted Michael with a desperate embrace, then offered Jackie a limp hand. "'Where is she?' asked Michael. His mother nodded towards the lounge, and then, arm in arm, mother and son staggered down the hallway. Jackie squeezed her eyes with her fingertips and followed them inside. The house was decorated like something from a 1960s Country Life magazine. Under every tiny ceramic animal hid a frilly white doily, Against one wall stood an imposing glass-fronted cabinet displaying a bone china plate set. Red and blue paisley patterns swirled over clean but threadbare carpets. On a card table in the center of the lounge lay a tiny coffin lined with pink silk, inside which reclined a rather overweight white cat. Its eyes were closed. Its front paws were crossed over its chest. Suddenly the scene became too much for Jackie. Michael sobbing over the casket, his black-clad mother clutching his arm, the cat being mourned for like a dead son, so that when, with a quivering hand, Michael reached to stroke its whiskers, Jackie decided enough was enough. Okay, she said, are we burying it, sorry, her, tonight or tomorrow? Michael's mother lifted her veil to reveal eyes cold with hate. Show a little respect, will you? For Christ's sake, it's just a cat. Michael lifted his chin. She was not just a cat. Under her breath, Jackie said, So you keep saying. No, said his mother. She was more than a cat to you, wasn't she? Michael and his mother held a soft-eyed look, a look that seemed to Jackie uncomfortably like the sad, shared gaze of lovers who know that one day they will be separated by death. Jackie coughed. She mumbled something about the bathroom. In the hallway, she bent over, grabbing her knees, shaking her head. Was she imagining this? Funereal orchestra music seeped from the lounge. Jackie stood upright. She turned and peeked through the crack in the door. She spun back around. No, it couldn't be. She must be seeing things. Jackie knew Michael and his mother had an odd relationship, that he had whimsical tendencies. But what they were doing in the lounge could only be called bizarre, more in line with the freak show than with the man with whom she made love on slow Sunday mornings who pulled out her chair and poured her wine when they went for dinner. Heart-thumping, Jackie turned slowly and peered once more through the crack. And there they were, the dead cat lifted from its coffin, Michael holding it upright by its front paws, his mother moving its feet, as between the two they enacted a macabre waltz between Michael and the cat. The cat's head lolled to the side, its tiny mouth open, its sharp white teeth bared, its dead eyes gazing at Jackie with as much hate as the last time they met. Jackie took the car keys from Michael's jacket pocket and crept out of the house. As she drove away, she tried not to think about Michael, his mother, the stupid dead cat, the wreckage of her relationship, yet another one to add to the growing pile. She turned onto the M1, which was still lit and smiled. She was better off without him. But as she left London and the motorway lights went out, her smile faded, for stretching ahead of her, in the glow of her headlights, were lines of cat's eyes, winking at her, taunting her, stretching into the distance. The End Rupan is a short writer of tall stories, who spends his spare time cowering from the rainy northern England skies. 
Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants by the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.